the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. It is Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life. Again, we're grateful that you take the time to turn. Hey, the purpose of our program is to answer your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is call 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app um, and send your questions to us that way. And as always, if you are driving in your car, uh, the safest way to do that is to use the free KSLR mobile app, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Um, I'm going to start the program a little different today. Very quickly, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me. So ladies, it's a special day for you. Uh, but uh, additionally, tonight I'm going to be teaching a, a weird chapter. It's, it's, I think it's got a lot of relevance for us, but Second uh, Kings chapter 10, you can watch that at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock tonight. Uh, I'm going to start the program a little differently. I've got a, a, a question that was sent to me. It took a lot of thought. Uh, it's anonymous, and it is about um, a dream that was sent. So um, I'm gonna. This this is a little bit involved, but I think it's important enough to talk about just this whole idea of dreams. Uh, again, this is an anonymous question or anonymous thing that was sent to us, and he says here he describes his dream. I see a fake sky, a man-made sky. It's black, but not like, uh, but not black like we're uh, used to saying it's dark outside. It's black like a tinted window. It spreads out like an organic swirling net across the actual sky, and everywhere it covers it brings sickness and death, but the death is not real. The soul is gone, but the body is alive. The alive body appears dead until those unaffected by the sky come close. Then they animate and attempt to make the unaffected affected. Separately, I'm elsewhere, and I see a being spherical in appearance, and yet it's not a sphere, uh, but multifaceted, um, beyond count for me anyway, he writes in parenthesis. Uh, The being is in constant motion as it's suspended above the land. Uh, I don't see the ground. I'm looking up and cannot uh, look away. I can only look straight up. I'm at peace, but the being is mad. Each facet of the sphere shape is an eye or a lens or a probe or sensor, and it's uh, monitoring everything in real time. It doesn't see the future. It sees the present and all of it at once. The eyes look both organic and mechanical, and they're not all the same. Each one seems to have a different purpose and see something different. 
uh, one of them is always focused on me, though it may not be the same eye. The eyes rotate and move and shift organically forwards and backwards like a complex Rubik's Cube. But with each shift, there's a different eye or sensor watching me, and I can feel that it is angry. I cannot move, but I'm not afraid. There's one sensor or eye that stops to examine me for a longer time than the others, and it is almost cross-shaped. The top of the cross is rounded like if you drew a circle at the top of a traditional Christian cross. I still have to look up, but the being loses interest in me. It shifts and turns and sways and undulates almost like the usual, or the, I'm sorry, like the casual slithering of a snake. It passes over me. My field of view is still straight up, and even though I cannot move, my field of view is changed for me by an unknown force. I'm not moving or turning, but my view is. It's changed to where I am now looking down at the earth from a high place. This change takes place slowly and smoothly. There's no disorientation, dizziness, or motion sickness. In addition to turning, and at the same time, I was moved rapidly many miles in an instant. It was a flash or a blur before my eyes, and I was there. From this high place looking down, below me is a yellowish-brown sludge moving across the earth. It looks similar to the landslides in California, but everywhere. I can hear quietly in the distance, but sounding like from a multitude, the Antichrist is born, repeated over and over. It is joyful and chant-like. The earth shakes greatly beneath my feet. Now, I realize it's a lot of detail, and the reason I went into it, uh, I hope will be made clear as I answer the question. Let me first say to everybody, I'm not an interpreter of dreams. Um, I'm, I'm one who, who, um, I, I, I have terrible nightmares. It just, it's just the, 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 a cross I bear. Um, and mine have detail, a great deal of detail. Almost never are these dreams from God. Almost never. Um, you know, God wouldn't send nightmares. Uh, God would send instruction or correction or encouragement, but God wouldn't send nightmares. So I, I've stopped trying even to interpret my own dreams. Um, I think sometimes we get a little bit too carried away with dreams and assume that every dream um, must have some meaning, or at least as it's sent from the Lord. And uh, we, we really pursue trying to find out what those dreams are. Uh, so I'm not like Daniel. Um, I can interpret a dream, or Joseph. But here's what I can say about this. The, the detail here is fascinating to me. Um, uh, it's hard, really, to describe dreams in this kind of detail, because typically, at least when I have them, um, you know, the detail is lost on me when I get up in the morning. Um, in this case, um, as I was considering this dream, I thought, well, this is one, you know, one of the things I always say is if God wants you to, if God gives you a dream, he wants you to know what it means and he will give you the meaning at the right time. Not always um, immediately, but he'll give you the interpretation of the dream because uh, if he's trying to communicate with you, that's what he wants to do is he wants to communicate effectively. Um, and um, I would, if if I had this dream, I would be seeking the Lord um, really carefully about any kind of interpretation. And the way I typically will do it is to say, okay, Lord, is there something you're trying to say to me? And I'll, I'll get my Bible. Um, I'll spend some time alone with the Lord, but but just, just trying to be sensitive to hearing the Spirit of God. And until you got to the last line, that's what my recommendation would have been to you. But when you say this, you can hear quietly in the distance, but sounding like from a multitude, the Antichrist is born, repeated over and over. It's joyful and chant-like. The earth shakes greatly beneath my feet. Um, that's that's where this one sort of falls off the rails to me. Um, I I hope the Antichrist is born. I hope he's alive. Uh, I, I frankly I hope he's older than just now being born. Uh, because that means uh, Jesus will be coming for his church uh, much more quickly 
than uh, than if 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 the Antichrist is born today as a baby and then we got all this time. At my age, I want to be here when the when Jesus comes for the church. Um, but but you see, we're not going to know anything about the Antichrist. Now, if if the last paragraph of this dream said the, the, what what sounded like this multitude sounded like. Um, get ready, I'm coming soon. That would be a whole new thing. Uh, we're supposed to be, as Christians, looking for the Christ to return, not the Antichrist. And this is just something that we will have no way of understanding, nor will we be here. Um, so, um, you know, if God was trying to tell you to, to get ready or to be alert, Paul says it all the time, uh, be on guard, stay alert. Uh, that would be different. But but the idea here that the Antichrist is born um, would lead me to conclude. Now, remember, I don't have the gift of interpretation for dreams, uh, and I would be careful of anybody who says they do. But um, I would be inclined to, to sort of just dismiss this as a dream f- to an active imagination. Uh, you know, you could have been thinking about or talking to someone about uh, the Antichrist and when's he going to come and the Great Tribulation, all those things. And you could have seen these things. Um, but uh, to, to to single out the Antichrist would at least, for me, disqualify it as being a dream that was from the Lord. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm an expert. It doesn't mean that I'm telling you that this isn't the Lord. Uh, I'm just telling you this is something you've got to really search with all of your heart but don't do anything with a dream like this. And certainly I wouldn't share it with people, um, especially if it's in the vein of, hey, uh, the Lord told me that the Antichrist is already born. Uh, I wouldn't share that with anybody because I think the, 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 the likelihood that that would be a misinterpretation of a dream that wasn't from God at all um, might compromise our witness. So I, I hope that makes sense. And I know for the rest of my audience who doesn't really care about this, um, that was a long, drawn-out explanation. But um, dreams, you know, I get questions about dreams all the time. And so let me just say it once more and, and uh, go on to the next question. Let me just say that if God gives you a dream, he'll want you to know what it means. And we have to simply wait and seek the Lord for the answer to that dream. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question that came from our email inbox. It is also anonymous. Uh, Pastor, can you please explain why women cannot deliver sermons during Sunday services, sometimes or any time? Is this requirement more cultural, like the covering of heads for women? Uh, if not, would you please provide references? And then a second question is, how does one know what are the promises meant for believers in this generation? I've heard you uh, I've heard from you that some of the text of the Bible was for the Jewish folks. How do we know what is for us? Thank you so much. Yeah, let me take the last one first, uh, Anonymous, just because um, I, I think it's a fairly straightforward question. Um, to, to know what promises are made for us, you've got to read the Bible in context and understand uh, to whom the promise is given. You know, uh, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. every Christian in the world um, um, holds on that promise. But it wasn't a promise made to us at all. It was a promise made through the prophet to Israel because God was about to hand uh, the, the southern tribes over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And they were going to be chased out of, of their, their country. Now, we know this was the judicial hand of God allowing this judgment. But um, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is is just saying, I know, I know things are scared. I know it's discouraging. But don't worry, Jeremiah, because my promises are yes and amen. Every promise I made to Israel, I'm going to fulfill. And I think we want to take a promise like that and, and apply it to us when, in fact, you've got to determine who the promise is to. If you go to Romans chapter 8, and I, I like to do this one a lot, Anonymous, because uh, there's so many wonderful promises in there. Uh, the promise that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was being written to born-again believers in Rome. 
uh, we can take that promise and apply it personally and individually to every single born-again believer. And when we're feeling condemned or when we're feeling like the enemy is lying to us, we can understand that's not God at all. There's no condemnation. Conviction and condemnation are two different things. So uh, that's a promise that we can take. Uh, If God is for me, who can be against me? Uh, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Those kinds of promises that are written to New Testament Christians are promises that we can take as promises given to us in the church. So we've got to be careful, but always, always read the context. Um, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray... Uh, that's a promise that, that uh, Christians have been grabbing out of context forever. And um, it's simply not a, a promise that is intended for us. You can't separate the promise from the audience and from the context. That's really, really important. Final thought on this. Um, when we take those promises and apply principles... Uh, if my people will humble themselves, we can humble ourselves. And we know that when we're seeking the Lord with all of our heart and we're walking in humility, then God is going to hear our prayers and answer our prayers. So that's something that we can take in terms of an application from the passage of Scripture. But it's certainly not a promise that is given to us. And we see so many times Christians sort of playing name it and claim it with promises that were never for them. By his stripes, you are healed, and the not the entirety of, but but a large majority of the Christian church has said, well, that's a great promise, so I'm healed of my diseases, when that promise in Isaiah 53 has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. So that's what we have to understand. The context and the audience determines whether or not we can apply those um to our own lives. Now, the first question, um, explaining why women cannot deliver sermons during Sunday services, why a woman can't be a pastor, in effect, is what the question is. Um, This requirement is not cultural, like uh, the Corinthians passage, covering of heads for women, uh, which is cultural. Now, what's the difference between those two? In Corinthians, Paul says, uh, I do not permit a woman to speak. You've got to be quiet. Well, that was a direction to a church that was completely out of control. The reason we know that was cultural or local is because Paul in other places has indicated there are women who are prophetesses and and women who can pray in church. And and, and so certainly the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Now, the Genesis, I'm sorry, the the, uh, 2 Timothy 2 passage, um, why women can't be pastors. Um, Paul says very clearly, and the context is the order in the church, orderly worship. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority in the church. Over man is the idea there. So uh, that disqualifies a woman from being able to be a pastor. All of the passages that describe the attributes of a pastor are in the in the masculine. Uh, it must be the husband of one wife. It doesn't say the wife of one husband. Um, and the idea there is simple. God is the head of the church. Jesus himself is the head of the church. And he gets to make the rules. Now, he's not anonymous, suggesting for any at any rate at all that women are inferior to, less spiritual, uh, smart, not, not as smart as men, or, or certainly not as gifted. I, every time I get these questions about women teaching, I'm quick to say we've got women teachers in our church here who are abundantly gifted. And, and uh, there are a couple who I honestly think, this isn't me being falsely humble, um, I honestly believe that, that, that a couple of those women are more gifted at teaching even than I am. Um, but you see, they've got to stay in their lane, and the lane is given by Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this isn't cultural? Uh, it's a simple hermeneutic. Uh, when Paul gives this instruction, he goes all the way back to Genesis to establish the foundation or the reason. He says, for it was um, um, Eve who was deceived, and this seems then to be a consequence of the fall um, Eve was deceived. Uh, Adam sinned deliberately, but Eve was deceived. And uh, the idea here is that the Genesis foundation in Second Timothy 
um, indicates very clearly that this is a rule for all of the churches throughout the church age. So, no genesis in the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's a cultural, local church dealing with difficult problems. Um, but in First uh, Timothy chapter 2, the idea here is, uh, the context is the order in the church, orderly worship, and it's God himself giving the rules. I do not permit a woman to teach her of authority over a man. So, that's why women can't deliver sermons. That's why they're not to be in a position of authority in the church. Um, the leadership of the church is male. Now, it's not that God thinks men are smarter. I said that a moment ago. Remember, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the despised things, even the things that are not. So uh, certainly no man can can take pride in, in being called to be a pastor um, or, or being being in authority. It's just the way God set up things. There are two places, Anonymous, that the, the man is in charge. It is in the Christian home and in the Christian church. So, again, no Genesis reference in Corinthians. Um, there is the Genesis reference in First Timothy, and that's what indicates whether or not this is cultural or foundational, and this is um, foundational. Thanks very much. You know, people really get upset because of that, but, you know, the problem I think that we see is uh, our, our fallen flesh, male or female, our fallen flesh um, wants what we know we can't have. I've known a lot of women, gifted women teachers, who have called themselves to be pastors. They blame that on God. And it's interesting, there's no other restrictions against women. Women uh, get the same spirit, the same gifts of the spirit. Um, but what, what our flesh wants is the one thing that God says we can't have. To Eve, to Adam, he said, well, you can have every tree, the fruit of every tree is yours to eat. Enjoy it. But this one tree, and that's the tree that they kept coming back to until they fell. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Frank. He said, uh, how do you reconcile Adam and Eve compared to scientific evidence that humans are much lower life forms like cavemen and Neanderthals? Frank, I started to answer this one yesterday and we ran out of time. Um, and I've got only a couple minutes here uh, in this half of the program. So let me just say, uh, I think I, I had time yesterday to say that uh, this is uh, one of those things where um, we've got to understand that, that a choice has to be made. Am I going to believe um, the Bible or am I going to believe scientists who want to disprove the existence of God altogether? I don't understand that. So, um, Frank, you've got to make that choice. Do your do your study. Uh, decide what the authority in your life is going to be. And if it's not the Bible, then you're going to be in trouble. In the beginning, God. Our Bible, our New Testament says... All things were made through Jesus Christ. Our New Testament says that Adam and Eve, were, Jesus speaking, by the way, says that Adam and Eve were the first two humans on the face of the earth. And if we don't understand that, Frank, um, if, we, if we disagree with that statement by Jesus, then um, we've got a problem in terms of where our heart is and whether or not we're really, really saved. So the scientific evidence always has an agenda the scientific evidence begins with the premise that there is no God. And from that place, the only choice we can make is, am I going to believe God, his word, or am I going to believe that the earth is billions of years old in the absence of any evidence at all? You know, smart people have got big telescopes and they speculate a lot. Uh, I was just reading something um, um, the end of last week where um, because of the drought in California, they've seen some of the dams uh, lower to such a point that they're discovering uh, things that they've never seen before. And in one of the articles that I was looking at, uh, they said, we, we have now seen that this piece of property here is more than 12 million years old. And, you know, we're supposed to just accept that. 
on the basis of their say-so, when in fact, all we have to do is say, God did it. God did it. Okay, that's enough for that question. How we got one more minute? Yep. James uh, said yesterday, I don't think I have time to do that. James said, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Um, James, Jesus cursed the fig tree. It was a sermon illustration. Um, Fig tree is an ancient symbol for Israel. And Israel has just rejected him. He's come into town during the the triumphal entry. And in fact, um, they're all saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, And and the, the, the crowd didn't really want him. In other words, they didn't. They weren't what they appeared to be. Well, the fig tree with his disciples there was just another example. It appeared to have fruit. It didn't have any fruit. The, the day earlier, the house of God, the temple was was uh, um, misrepresented. Uh, the people were misrepresented. And, and now this fig tree was sort of like the last straw. Jesus believed uh, there was fruit there, and there was no fruit. I wonder sometimes if that's not what he does when he looks at us. Your Christians are supposed to be fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he says, where's the fruit? So he cursed it as a sermon illustration so that his followers would know. We've got 30 minutes left on our program today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program. I promise I'm going to try to get more organized this half of the program. I'm, I'm having some computer problems and questions are popping up. And right in the middle of them, I'm reading, I realize we had this question yesterday. I don't know why it's coming back on my computer. And I'm a computer idiot, and so I can't fig- fix it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to all questions that I know are brand new. Here's our first one. It is from Joe, and he says, Are there times when we should not take communion because we've sinned? Joe, it is never wise to partake of communion when you're in active, unrepentant sin. Now, one of the things that we do here at our church, and I, I'm sure this is the case, or at least should be the case in every church, is I warn people. Unbelievers shouldn't partake. Um, Christians in willful rebellion against God, unrepentant sin, shouldn't partake. Paul, in writing of the Corinthians, he said that uh, it's true that some of you um, have been have sick because you're you're taking communion in an unworthy manner, and still others have died as a result. It's sort of like we're blaspheming God when we do that. So, Joe, the only time that you shouldn't partake of communion is if you are in willful, unrepentant sin against God. Now, the 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 best news about this is that you can repent right there on the spot. You know, it ought to shock our sensitivities um, when we when we get to the place where we're getting ready to partake of the the, the bread or the cup, and and we realize, wait a minute, I, I'm doing things I know God doesn't want me to do, and especially if we're not willing to stop. Fornication is a perfect example. Uh, every every week in Christian churches, there are a bunch of people who are living together, having sex, that are married. People that are going out and having sex with people they're not married to. And we do it and we think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, this is like the 21st century, uh, when the reality is God doesn't care about any of that. God sets a standard. And when we who are believers, we, we pro- make that profession with our mouths, and yet we live a life in contradiction to that profession of faith. We're really taking huge risks by coming to the table. It's almost like trampling on the grace of God. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, after talking about grace, where where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. 
And then begins the next chapter with these words. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace can 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 continue to abound? And then I love the King James because it says, God forbid. And literally in Greek, it means God forbids that. And yet sometimes we sit at the table of the Lord uh, in church and we know we got all these things that we have no intention of changing and we're really sort of thumbing our nose in the face of God in the process. So, Joe, don't take communion if you're in willful rebellion against God. Now, all you have to do is genuinely say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And obviously, if you're being genuine, you recognize that you, you've got to stop doing it. I can't do it. And it means you're going to stop right now, right then. Lord, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. I remember, Joe, uh, again, I was a, a fairly new believer at this time. God was still doing some marvelous things, showing off for me. But but I was lying all the time. And um, I, I got to the point where I was so convicted by the lying that I just knew I couldn't lie one more time. And I said, God, please forgive me. I'm not going to do this again. I know this breaks your heart. And I made that commitment. Now, believe me, I was tested right away. But you had to get to the point where I'd rather die than lie, and I did. Well, whatever sin is in your life, you've got to hate your sin so much that you're ready to say, Lord, no more. If you're living with somebody you're not married to, it's got to stop right now today. And I find, Joe, that there's a lot of people in church who simply do not want to um, give up a fleshly pleasure. And yet they'll partake of communion and it's a dangerous thing. So don't take it if you're going to stay in rebellion against God, but but be aware that by refusing communion, Jesus said, remember me. Remember me. He's coming again. But remember what I've done. Remember my love. Remember my sacrifice. And the reality is, if that doesn't strike the fear of God in your heart enough to make you stop sinning, then you're probably not a believer in the first place. Thank you for that question, Joe. Serious one. Glenn says, uh, Pastor Ron, if the devil hears our prayers, shouldn't we pray without talking out loud? Um, No. You know, one of the things, Glenn, that that, that God is going to do, remember, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And when we are praying, uh, we're in communion with the Lord, we're in fellowship with God, his presence is there. He'll protect you from the enemy. Uh, We don't have to be afraid of the devil. Um, um, You know, we don't want to shout at him and bind him and all that nonsense. But uh, you can say your prayers out loud. Now, you can can pray silently as well. But but clearly, uh, we don't need to be afraid of praying out loud. God's got you. And if you're in his will, if you're walking in his presence... Um, it doesn't matter what the devil is doing because the devil can't do anything without going through the Lord, getting his permission to afflict you or to uh, harass you or anything else. So, uh, yeah, you can pray out loud. Um, uh, talk to Jesus. Don't talk to the devil. But um, remember, that's all the devil can do. He can huff and he can puff and he can threaten to blow your house down. But without the permission from God, who loves you? And it's proven that he loves you. He can't do anything at all about it. So don't be afraid just to pray normally out loud. Linda says, by the way, I find in in my prayer life, I do much better praying out loud than I do uh, praying to myself. Uh, my mind tends to wander when I'm praying um, just within my own mind and heart. Um, when I'm speaking out loud, it's easier to focus, and it's more like a real conversation with Jesus, which is all that prayer is. So, good question. Here's a question from Linda. Linda says, and let's, I don't think this is the same Linda that I'm going to talk about now, but uh, um, Linda, we're praying for you and for your recovery, and um, 
You're, there's not a day goes by that you're not in our prayers and heart. So thank you. Different Linda says, what happened that Jacob had to wrestle God? Um, this was a, so, you know, we, we, we laugh and say, well, they had to come to Jesus moment. Well, well, this was Jacob's come to Jesus moment. Jacob wrestled with Jesus. And the reason he wrestled with him, because he got to a point where he could no longer run from his problems. This is so reminiscent of my life, and this is Genesis chapter 32. And, and uh, um, Linda, this, this has been one of the most personal Old Testament stories in my 31 years of being a believer. You get to the point where life is so overwhelming. You've run and you've run and you run, and finally you find there's nowhere else to run. And Jesus shows up and says, oh, I want to wrestle. No, I'm not being trite here. It's figuratively he wrestles with us, but we've got to make that choice. And uh, Esau was bearing down on Jacob. Jacob was terrified of Esau in his strength. He had a right to be terrified. Not only was Esau stronger, but but he know, knew that he he treated Esau um, deceitfully. Uh, he'd stolen his his blessing. And uh, so he was running from, literally running from Esau his whole life when he couldn't run anymore. Esau was coming. That's when Jesus was there and basically said, do you want to wrestle? And uh, if you read the passage carefully, um, Jacob was trying to get away from Jesus as they wrestled all night long. Jesus is holding on to Jacob. Jacob's trying to get away from Jesus. And suddenly, uh, it's about to be morning, and um, um, Jesus says, I've, I've tried to, to hold on to you. You won't let me hold on to you, so I'm going to let you go. But before he let him go, he touched his hip with such power that he was crippled for the rest of his life. And Jacob then, at that moment, realized the power that he was running away from and and he realized that that's the kind of power that I need to be with me on my side. It's sort of like um, um, Joshua in Joshua chapter five when he meets General Jesus. You see that power. It's it's so awesome that I need that power on my side. And it was at that moment that the the, the roles in the wrestling match uh, reversed. And um, and it was Jacob now who was holding on to Jesus while Jesus was trying to get away. And um, Jesus basically said, let me go. I've, I've been holding on to you all night, and, and you didn't want me to hold on to you now. Let me go. And Jacob's response was, I will not let go until you bless me. And that, that line, Linda, has been a part of my... Um, very first prayers in the morning, every morning for 31 years. Lord, I will not let go until you bless me. And then I usually add something like, I know that if I, if I let go, Lord, I'll ruin everything that you've done for me. Keep me close. So that's, Jacob had no other choice. And, and when we get to that place, and I wish more Christians would let the Lord get us to that place, when we get to that place, once and for all, where we can't, there's nowhere else to turn. We can't manipulate circumstances. There's no more people to, to look for or to trust in. We have only God to turn to. Well, Jesus will be right there and invite you to a wrestling match. Thank you, Linda. I always love talking about that. I have about a million stories about things that the Lord has spoken to my heart in those times of wrestling. Edward wants to know, am I guilty of adultery having married a divorcee? Um, boy, isn't God's grace wonderful, Edward? Um, you've not had sex with somebody that you're not married to, so no, you're not guilty of adultery. Again, the context and the Jewishness of Matthew chapter 19 has got to be kept in view here. He was dealing with the question, an insincere question, from the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law about divorce. Is it, or is it lawful for men to divorce for any other reason? We, we, we believe it is. There are two schools of thought. And Jesus basically is saying, no, the, your ideas of divorce are just legalized adultery. 
And that's why he addressed that the way it is. But Edward, I don't know why your wife got divorced. I don't know anything about your circumstances. But just remember this. Grace is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And now the best way to serve the Lord, uh, the best way to enjoy the presence of the Lord, is to make sure that your current marriage, the one you're in, is a marriage that honors God from the depths of both of your hearts. And you are not living in adultery. Um, Just enjoy and remember you're God's representative in your wife's life. Thank you very, very much for that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Toll free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Kim. Um, In what part of Jewish history was Psalm 106 written? In verse 47, it says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your presence. Was it written after the captivity in Babylon? You know, Kim, we don't really know exactly for sure. That could have been written in many different parts of Israel's history. Um, so we're not sure. You know, there is always speculation, but we're not sure. Uh, it most likely was not written as late as after the captivity in Babylon. Um, and off the top of my head, I don't know who the author of, of Psalm 106 is, and I can't see it in my Bible right now. So I'll, I'll look into it a little bit more, Kim, and get back to you. But, but most likely, it was not written that late in Israel's history. But remember, Israel has always had enemies, whether it was the Philistines uh, during the time of the judges, um, during the reign of the early kings, uh, we, 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 unless we can identify when that psalm was written, we don't know for sure. Kim, I'll do a little bit of background check on it. I'll try to get that answer to you uh, on Friday. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from uh, Anonymous. Um, why does it seem as though way more women are active in church than men? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I had a question about women being pastors at the at the top of the program. Um, you know, I don't want to be too general, but it seems as though women have a greater sensitivity to the things of God. You know, you look around at, at Jesus' ministry during his three and a half years, and he had 12 men following who were always arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And yet we know from Luke chapter 8, there were a bunch of women who were following him as well and providing support for for uh, Jesus and the disciples' ministry. Uh, and, and they were more interested in serving. Um, uh, you know, men have always um, tried to escape the personal responsibility of being the leaders in their homes. And if they're not going to be leaders in their homes, they're certainly not going to be leaders in the church. And that's why Jesus said, I don't care what you are or who you are, you're my servant, so men, you're going to be leaders in the church. And the reality is that it is simply more true in more churches that women are in positions of control, not necessarily authority, but women are doing a lot of the work. Now, Anonymous, let me say this, and and I'm going to brag on my people a little bit, and this is a godly bragging and what God has done. That is not the case here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Um, We have uh, more men uh, in positions of authority, ministry leadership, um, um, men involved in in every facet of the church, um, uh, and it's just that's the way it's supposed to be. And men are supposed to set the examples for the women and for the children in the church. And uh, we have really abundantly been blessed, Anonymous, by that. But um, I just think uh, churches that are run or controlled by women are churches that are out of control. And it just ought not to be that way. You remember in the book of Judges, um, God called a man to do something. He didn't want to do it unless the woman, Deborah, went with him. Uh, she was the judge, uh, and 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 men. This was a time now when everybody did what seemed right in their own eyes. So this isn't God 
endorsing it, but the reality was that women way back then were stepping up and the men weren't. And and God will use whoever is available. And um, it's just spiritual laziness on the part of the men, or maybe better than laziness is an apathy. Um, more men seem to be okay just doing nothing. Women want to put their faith to their feet. And I think that's what we see in the church. I don't think it's anything new either, Anonymous. Here's a question from Robin. She says, uh, I know we all have the Holy Spirit, so why do some Christians fall into sin when the Holy Spirit is with them? Um, You know, the the Holy Spirit is interesting. I've said that you know, the Holy Spirit is God. He's fully God. He has all the attributes the Father and the Son have, equal power. Uh, there's no inferiority. He's not like a junior partner in the in the Trinity. Uh, and yet, all-powerful God, the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. There's only one power on earth that can really, really quench God's Spirit, and that's that's you and me. Robin, I can say no. I can quench the spirit. I can be in disobedience. God gives me the free will to make those choices. And it's like I've got all this power living in me. And yet, it's like I go in there and keep turning on the off switch with my behavior. So the Christians who have the Holy Spirit, I'm talking about real believers, who backslide or fall into sin, uh, they simply get used to saying no. And they've got this power, the the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof, Paul says. Um, and in that case, um, it's just it's just sin, willful sin. And it's the Holy Spirit knocks at the door of our hearts. But another thing I say often here, Robin, is that when we say no to Jesus, um, it becomes easier to say no to him the next time. And far too many of us as Christians have fallen into the trap of saying no to the Lord. Period. We say no. And the reason we say no is because we don't want to do what he says. And I think it demonstrates uh, some some other problems. We don't really love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Uh, we don't really trust him because we take matters into our own hands or do what we want so we don't experience the power of God so we don't have a frame of reference to trust him. But um, we quench the Spirit. That's why Paul says, quench not the Holy Spirit of God. Good question. We're inside f- about four minutes now, I think, so uh, no time for any more phone calls. Uh, I won't give you the number. Here's a question from Edward. He says, Pastor Ron, how will people get saved in the Great Tribulation if the Holy Spirit is taken away? Now, Edward, your your thought is uh, it's the Holy Spirit who testifies of Christ, and you're right. But remember, the Holy Spirit's not going to be gone. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the church that's going to be gone. We're the ones now, Paul says, that are restraining evil. And when the restrainer is taken out of the way, and that's the church being raptured, and basically the light goes out here on earth and, and, the, and the world is plunged into spiritual blackness um, and there's no inhibitor. Um, I know it doesn't seem like it now, Edward, but the reality is we're holding back wickedness in this world. Just our presence, just our witness, the light. Jesus said we're salt and we're light. And just we're preserving things. Again, it might not look like we're doing a very good job, but imagine when all of the light is gone and only darkness exists, um, how horrible things are going to be. So here's what we've got. We've got the Holy Spirit removing our witness. But during the Great Tribulation, the Holy Spirit's still going to be actively drawing people to Christ. He's going to be using the two witnesses at the wall, Moses and Elijah, and the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists, the witnesses who are going to be spread all over the earth to share the gospel, those men given given miraculous power. Uh, I always like to think of 144,000 invincible apostle Pauls, and, and they're going to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is still going to be saving people. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, so it's not like he's gone 
It's just his witness, his his light through the church of Jesus Christ is going to be gone because we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. So, Edward, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, the one thing that we really ought to be doing in these last days is making sure that we're taking a stand for Jesus. Let me let you take this home with you, all of you. This is uh, Jesus. He said that we're we're to be light. Let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And further, he says, no one lights a fire and puts it under a basket or a bushel. No, we put it up on a table where it can give light to the whole room. Our job, our job is to give light in this world that is pretty, pretty dark. Thank you. I appreciate the calls. Remember, pray for us. Pray for joy of Jesus. We're now uh, just a couple of days away. Um, Saturday, October the 22nd at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Um, we'd love to meet you out there. Come and just see what the Lord is doing. It is an amazing thing. Um, and we we would really covet your prayers. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Second Kings chapter 10. Uh, if you read it, you might want to come. It's interesting. Uh, and then uh, tomorrow, of course, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the show. And we look forward to that day, uh, being able just to share our hearts with, with all of you. Hey, thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You have been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Um, We'll be back tomorrow, Paula, live in studio. May God bless you and keep you. Pray for us. Big event coming up on Saturday. Thanks for tuning in. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.